0: And if you have your Bibles with you today, would you take them and and open them to 1 Kings chapter 8. 1 Kings chapter 8. We're in a special series for the beginning of the summer called The Prayers of the Saints, in which we're looking at a selection of the great prayers that are recorded for us in the Bible, prayers that have been prayed by your people, by God's people uh, throughout history, throughout the ages. Last week, uh, we were in 1 Chronicles, and you remember we were looking at one of the prayers that David prayed. It was a prayer of dedication in which the temple, uh, he had a desire to build the temple, and the Lord said, no, you're not going to build it. Your son Solomon will build it. And so, being somewhat disappointed that he didn't have the opportunity to build the temple, he did what he could do in gathering all the supplies that he could gather for the purpose of the temple's construction. And then he prayed this great prayer at the end of his life, and that was the last recorded action of David in in 1 Chronicles before he died. Well, today, this week, we're in 1 Kings chapter 8, and now the temple has just been finished. So Solomon has worked many long years while well, his people have worked many long years at the construction of the temple. It's finished, and what we have here in 1 Kings chapter 8 is Solomon's prayer of dedication. This is the ribbon cutting ceremony of the new temple, if you will, and Solomon prays this prayer, this long prayer. This is one of the longest recorded prayers that we have in the Bible. From verse I believe the prayer starts in verse 23 through through verse 53. 30 Verses this prayer goes, and so I want to read this prayer for us. Uh, it's long, but it's it's edifying for us to listen to. So let me ask, if you're able, would you join me today in standing for the reading of God's holy and inerrant Word? This is First Kings chapter eight, starting in verse twenty-two. Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands toward heaven and said, O Lord, God of Israel, there is no God like you, keeping in heaven above or on earth beneath, keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all their heart, who have kept with your servant David my father what you declared to him. You spoke with your mouth, And with your hand have fulfilled it this day. Now therefore, O Lord, God of Israel, keep for your servant David, my father, what you have promised him, saying, You shall not lack a man to sit before me on the throne of Israel, if only your sons pay close attention to their way, to walk before me as you have walked before me. Now therefore, O God of Israel, let your word be confirmed, which you have spoken to your servant David, my father. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house that I have built. Yet have regard to the prayer of your servant and to his plea, O Lord my God, listening to the cry and to the prayer that your servant prays before you this day, that your eyes may be open night and day toward this house, the place of which you have said, My name shall be there, that you may listen to the prayer that your servant offers toward this place, And listen to the plea of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place. And listen in heaven, your dwelling place. And when you hear, forgive. If a man sins against his neighbor and is made to take an oath, and comes and swears his oath before your altar in this house, then hear in heaven and act and judge your servants, condemning the guilty by bringing his conduct on his own head, and vindicating the righteous by rewarding him according to his righteousness. When your people Israel are defeated before the enemy because they have sinned against you, and if they turn again to you and acknowledge your name and pray and plead with you in this house, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your people Israel and bring them again to the land that you gave to their fathers. When heaven is shut up and there is no rain because they have sinned against you, if they pray toward this place and acknowledge your name and turn from their sin when you afflict them, Then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your servants, your people Israel, when you teach them the good way in which they should walk and grant rain upon your land, which you have given to your people as an inheritance. If there is famine in the land, if there is pestilence or blight or mildew or locust or caterpillar, if their enemy besieges them in the land at their gates, whatever plague, whatever sickness there is, whatever prayer, whatever plea is made by any man or by all your people Israel, each knowing the afflictions of his own heart and stretching out his hands toward this house, then here in heaven your dwelling place and forgive and act and render to each whose heart you know according to all his ways. For you and you only know the hearts of all the children of mankind, that they may fear you all the days that they live in the land that you, have give, that you gave to our fathers. Likewise, when a foreigner who is not of your people Israel comes from a far country for your namesake, For they shall hear of your great name, and of your mighty hand, and of your outstretched arm. When he comes and prays toward this house, hear in heaven your dwelling place, and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you, in order that the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you, as do your people Israel, and that they may know that this house that I have built is called by your name. If your people go out to battle against their enemy, by whatever way you shall send them, and they pray to the Lord toward the city that you have chosen, and the house that I have built for your name, then hear in heaven their prayer and their plea, and maintain their cause. If they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin, and you are angry with them, and give them to an enemy, so that they are carried away captive to the land of the enemy far off or near, Yet, if they turn their heart in the land to which they have been carried captive, and repent and plead with you in the land of their captors, saying, We have sinned and have acted perversely and wickedly. If they repent with all their mind and with all their heart in the land of their enemies who carried them captive, and pray to to you toward their land, which you gave to their fathers, the city that you have chosen, and the house that I have built for your name, then hear in heaven your dwelling place, their prayer and their plea, and maintain their cause, forgive your people who have sinned against you and all their transgressions that they have committed against you and grant them compassion in the sight of those who carried them captive that they may have compassion on them for they are your people and your heritage which you brought out of Egypt from the midst of the iron furnace. Let your eyes be open to the plea of your servant and to the plea of your people Israel giving ear to them whenever they call to you. For you separated them from among all the peoples of the earth to be your heritage, as you declared through Moses your servant when you brought our fathers out of Egypt, O Lord God. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray to him one more time. Father, this prayer that Solomon, your servant, prayed to you is also to us your holy and inerrant inspired word to teach us, to point us to Christ, to be our guardian. And so, Lord, we pray now that you will open the eyes of our hearts. May this not be a fruitless exercise of learning history, but may this be an opportunity to see the beauty of our Savior, to understand more of our need for him, and to draw close to him with whole hearts. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Please be seated. So here we are in the book of 1 Kings. Last week we were in 1 Chronicles. We're spending several weeks here in the heart of the Old Testament going back into the history of Israel. But even as we do so and even as we're learning about the history of Israel, so long before Christ, let's remember this is not merely the story of the people of God from long ago. This is part of the story of redemption. This is, in fact, part of the story of Christ. And the reason that we go back to these passages, even though some of them seem so foreign and so odd and some of the customs so bizarre to us at this point, remember we go here to learn about Christ. We go here in order that the Spirit can use the Word of God to teach the people of God, to direct our hearts back to Christ, to grow in humility, to grow in faith, to grow in love for our Savior Jesus Christ. And so, even as we're reading today about Solomon and this prayer that he prayed, Really, this, this sermon is meant to be about Jesus. It's meant to be about our Savior, to be about how He has saved His people and what He has done for us. And so I hope that today we'll be fixing our eyes on Jesus, even as I want to direct our eyes to see three things in this passage. I want us to see a king who prays. I want us to see the order of grace and to rejoice that the Lord... Has come. There's a king who prays, we see the order of grace, and we rejoice because the Lord has come. And so, just right off the bat, I want to encourage you today, and I want you to, to know this truth, you have a king who prays for you. See, the very basic level, what we see in this passage, 1 Kings chapter 8, this is Solomon, this is the king of Israel, and he's praying for his people. Now on the surface, you look at the heading, and it's called a prayer of dedication. He's dedicating the newly built temple to the service of the Lord. But we read the prayer, and how much did he say about the temple? He wasn't really praying about the temple. He was dedicating the people to the Lord. Almost the entire prayer is composed of Solomon praying, the king of Israel praying for the people of Israel. He, he is confessing their sins in advance before they happen, seeking the Lord's mercy on their behalf asking God to hear their pleas, to forgive their sin, to restore them in the fear of the Lord throughout all of their days. This is such a beautiful picture of the king at work. He's praying for his people. He's interceding on their behalf. Here's the king of Israel, Solomon, and it says he is standing before the altar of the Lord with his arms stretched out to heaven. He prays this great and glorious prayer. Is it any wonder that this is looked back on and remembered as one of the real high points in Israel's history. A new temple has just been built. The Spirit of the Lord has inhabited his temple. And now here is this king, still at this point, one of the greatest kings that would reign over Israel. And he's praying this prayer on behalf of the people. And I want you to know this today, that you still today have a king who prays for you. Right? As, as we read a text like this, see, our first instinct is probably to hear a prayer like this and to say, okay, I want to be like Solomon, I want to, to learn how he views the Lord, how is it that he prays this prayer, and to learn some of the theology of it, we want to learn how to emulate him in praying, which is all good and wise, but first things first, right? If we are to see ourselves in this passage, right, if we're to, to read this and to ask, okay, if I were there, who am I? We're not Solomon, right? We're not the king of Israel. We're not over all the people. Who are we? Well, we're among the Israelites. We're the ordinary people of God, none of whom have done anything spectacular. But by the grace of God, they are part of God's people. And now, by the grace of God, they have been called by the king to come together to this place and to worship the Lord To witness the work of the king, and he is a great king, and to witness the work that he has done on their behalf, building this magnificent, spectacular temple for the Lord. And to see what their king has done on their behalf, and to hear that he is praying for them, And, and he knows their weaknesses. That's why he prays the way he does. He knows the people. He knows what their hearts are like, how prone they are to wander, how likely it is, in fact, inevitable it is, that they're going to fall into sin. And so he prays for them. He intercedes on their behalf. He's not really dedicating the temple to the Lord as much as he's dedicating the people to the Lord, bringing them before them. And and you'd have to say for these Israelites who were there, what a time to be alive. What a time the king of Israel has built a magnificent temple for the God of heaven and earth, for the Lord of their fathers, and he has come to inhabit the temple. What grace. What a chance to witness that. And now the king is praying for you. He's praying to the Lord on your behalf. But who are we? Are we not in a similar situation? We are the people of God. None of us have done anything spectacular to merit our place among the people of God. But by his grace, here we are. And today he has called his people to come together to witness the work that our king has done on our behalf in building a temple to the Lord. And he has come, he has invited us to be here to witness what he does for us in in building us into a temple for the Lord. Each one of us being a living stone built together into his temple, which is his church. We have to say, what a grace to his people. What a joy for us to gather knowing that, that we have a great king who has accomplished great things on our behalf. And it's not about what we have done. It's not about what we're even doing by being here. It's about what God has done on our behalf, and we gather to bear witness to his work. And not only that, but in doing so, we remember we have a king in Jesus Christ who prays for his people. He offers prayers on our behalf. John 17. The last thing that Jesus does before he's arrested and put on trial is to spend time praying for his disciples. John 17 is the longest recorded prayer of Jesus that we have, and he spends it praying for his disciples. And he says at one point, I pray not only for these here, the twelve, but for all those who will believe on my name through their testimony. That is, he's praying for us. John 17 records Jesus praying for you. praise prays for our hearts, for our love, for our unity. Hebrews 7, 25 assures us that Jesus is able to save us to the uttermost. Why? Because he ever lives to make intercession on your behalf. It says he's able to save to the uttermost because not only has he finished his work at the cross, but now he ever lives to make intercession for you, to pray for you, to plead your case to the Father. He's seated, after all, at the Father's right hand, and from there he prays for you. He knows your weaknesses. He knows the trials that he calls you to walk through. He knows your heart, how prone it is to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. He knows. And therefore, because of that, and because he's a good and merciful and loving king, he's praying for you. He's taking up your cause. Romans 8 says, again, actually it asks the question, who is to condemn you? Who is to condemn After all, Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Ask this question, who is to condemn you, to make you discouraged, to cause you to despair, to tempt you to give up? Who? After all, Jesus is the one who died for you, and now he ever lives, and he is making intercession on behalf of his people. Do you ever feel like you could just really use somebody who you knew was praying for you at that moment. No matter who else may or may not be praying for you, we always know that Jesus, our Savior, is interceding for you. He's praying for you. He's taking up your cause. He knows your weakness. He knows your infirmity. He knows your temptations that face you. And in light of that, he prays with great knowledge and with great wisdom and with great love for his children We need this encouragement. Jesus is a wise and perfect king. He prays for his people because he knows knows how badly we need it. He knows we need the encouragement. He knows we need the help. And so he prays for us. So are you feeling discouraged? Know that Jesus is praying for you today. Is your heart feeling cool? today, and and you don't know why, and you're wondering what you can do to to restore to your soul the joy of your salvation, well, know this to start. Jesus is your king, and he is praying for you. He's praying for that cold heart. He's asking the Lord on your behalf, Lord, restore the joy of his salvation. Give him a thankful and willing heart. Give him a heart that, that responds to the grace that you have to give him. Give him a soft and tender spirit. Jesus our king takes up our cause like king solomon says listen lord hear forgive restore you have a king who prays for you now let's look at some of the content of what solomon prays for his people here and what i want us to see first this is point two is to see in this prayer the order of grace Verse 23, this is how Solomon begins his prayer and when he says, O Lord, God of Israel, there is no God like you. In heaven above or on earth beneath, keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all their heart. Just like we saw two weeks ago that Hannah did in her prayer in 1 Samuel 2 and last week like David did in his prayer. So Solomon in his prayer, he begins with worship. He just begins with praise and adoration because he knows something, not everything, but enough of this God that he's praying to that he can't help but begin by offering worship. Offering praise. God, who is a God like you? There is none in heaven above or on earth beneath. And so Solomon, what he does is he singles out two aspects of God's character. Two things that that make him unique among the gods. Who is a God like you? Well, there's two reasons that there is none. And what he singles out is his faithfulness and his love. That's verse 23, where he says, you are keeping covenant and showing steadfast love. That's keeping covenant, that's his faithfulness to his word, and showing steadfast love to your servant, his faithfulness and his love. So he He's thinking, he's meditating, he's praying over the Lord's faithfulness to his people and his faithfulness to his word. Even as we get to the very end of that prayer, the very last verse, we see that Solomon is thinking back, all the way back to Exodus, when he just meditates on this, saying, "...for you separated them from among all the peoples of the earth to be your heritage, as you declared to Moses your servant when you brought brought our fathers out of Egypt, O Lord." He's seeing the faithfulness of God going all the way back to the very beginning of the people of Israel and saying, Lord, all this time you've been faithful to our fathers. You have kept your word that you spoke to them. I mean, we think of, of the history of Israel to this point, and, and we think, has it been just a unbroken string of success and glory and beauty wherever Israel has gone? <laughs> By no means. By no means. In fact, it's been quite the opposite. In many turns, they've been faithless to the Lord. It's been grumbling. It wasn't two days out of Egypt before the people were grumbling and complaining and wishing they'd stayed behind and died in Egypt, rather than taking part in God's great salvation for them. In fact, when we read the story of Israel in the Old Testament, what really stands out is not the greatness of the people of Israel and how much God loved them because they were awesome. What really stands out is quite the opposite, that here is a people who is grumbling and complaining against him, disobeying him, always prone to wander, always falling into disobedience, and yet we see a God who is constantly pursuing this people who is constantly reminding them and sending them judges and prophets and kings and priests who will teach them the word and call them to come back and call them to renew their hearts to the Lord. What stands out about the story of the Old Testament is the grace of this God and his unimaginable mercy towards this disobedient, hardened people. And Solomon thinks on that. He says, who is a God like this? And we have to respond, there is no other God like this. There is no other God like this. Is there any other religion that says that about their God? That what he is particularly known for is his loving kindness and his mercy towards those who disobey him? No. No, every other religion has a God who demands sacrifices. Ours has a God who offers a sacrifice on behalf of the people in order that we, might be saved. And this is the good news for us because this means when we look at, at our stories, when you reflect on your life and, and you are prone to ask, well, has my life been just an unbroken string of beauty and faithfulness and, and sacrifice for the Lord? And you have to say, no. No, it hasn't. Well, that's okay because your story is not meant to be a, about your glory. It's meant to be about the glory of a God who pursues you and loves you despite your sin. That's what makes our God look so wonderful in our eyes as we say, Lord, it's not about what I have done. I am a great sinner, but Christ is a great Savior. And in his mercy, he has continued to reach out to me and to pursue me all the days of my life despite myself. Because I know me and I am prone to wander. My heart is very prone to temptation, and yet Jesus finished the work at the cross to pay for my salvation that I might be saved. And that's what Solomon is looking at when he says... Lord God of Israel, there is no God like you who keeps his covenant. He keeps his covenant with his people. He's faithful to his word. And he's thinking here, particularly now, what we see in verses 23 through 26, is he's thinking particularly of God's faithfulness to his father David, when David was king. And in fact, he does two things in looking back to David. He praises God for his faithfulness to David. And then, immediately, he asked God to continue to be faithful to David. We see that in verse 24. You who have kept with your servant David, my father, what you declared to him, you spoke with your mouth and with your hand have fulfilled it this day. Now, therefore, O Lord God of Israel, keep for your servant David, my father, what you have promised him. So he's saying, you've been faithful and you've done it. Now, Lord, would you continue to be faithful? Would you continue to be faithful to what you have promised him? And what he's thinking of is, primarily back in 2 Samuel 7. And we don't need to turn there right now, but it's really an amazing episode. This is where it says, David, having given rest to Israel from all their enemies, now it is in his heart to build a temple for the Lord. And what's an interesting little twist, Nathan, the man of God, says to him, great, go and do all that's in your heart. But that night, God speaks to Nathan, and he says to him, actually, no, no, that's not quite right. Actually tell David, he's not going to build a temple for me. His son is going to do it. And when he speaks to David, David says his desire is to build a, a a house for the Lord. And God says to him, No, David, you will not build me a house. I will build you a house. See, David wanted to build a house that is a temple for the Lord, and, and the Lord says, No, David, you're not going to build me a house. I am going to build you a house that is a dynasty. That there will always be one of your sons sitting on the throne of Israel forever and ever. I'm going to build your house. And then he said, Now this desire to build a temple, this is a good desire, but you're not going to do it. Your son Solomon is going to do it. And if we ask, why did God operate that way? Why was it that he said to David, No, you're not going to build a house. Your son will build a house. Um, O. Palmer Robertson says of that, he says, the desire was good, the temple was good, but it was important that the order of grace must be maintained. The order of grace must be maintained because that is who our God is. He's a God of grace. He's a God who delights to give and to bless and to save. And so he says to David, David, before you do anything great for me, I'm going to do something great for you. Because it will not be about what you have done for me as much as it will be remembered for what I have done for you first. There is an order of grace that God doesn't begin with demands, but first he's a God who takes us when we have nothing to give. When we have nothing that we could possibly offer, he comes to us and he says, I'm not looking for you to make offerings and sacrifices to me. I'm going to offer to you first. I have grace to give to you before you are in a position to do anything for me. This is just like our salvation, isn't it? That God finds us when we are dead in our trespasses and sins. And he raises us up to seat us with Christ in the heavenly places. He does not wait for us to tell him what we can offer, to say, Lord, this is what I will do for you. He says, no, I'm going to do something for you first. There's always an order of grace, and he maintains that order of grace even here. And so Solomon prays, thanking God, praising God, because this is who he knows that God is, that there's this order of grace that must be maintained. Now look at verse 27. Verse 27 is to me the highlight of this prayer. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? The heavens, even the highest heavens, cannot contain you. How much less this temple I have built. This is the heart of this prayer of Solomon's to dedicating the temple of the Lord, and and this is what really proves the point of verse 23, that there is indeed no God like him. Will God really dwell on earth? Is this possible? This God who is majestic and transcendent and and omnipresent, everywhere present, is it possible that he could in fact dwell on earth? In fact, if we had read back further in chapter 8, we'd see that the reality has already happened. Uh, Look at chapter 8 starting in verse 10. Now here, the priests have just carried the Ark of the Covenant into the holy place of the temple. And now it says in verse 10, And when the priests came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. Here's what's happened. They have finished the temple they've put the Ark of the Covenant in it. And now the cloud of God's glory, the Shekinah glory, descends and fills the temple with so much glory that the priests who are there cannot stand to minister to the Lord because they're simply overwhelmed. That God's presence has come and has broken in, just like in Exodus 40 with the completion of the tabernacle. And now Solomon is marveling at what has happened. Will God really dwell on earth? Will he really dwell here condescending to be in the midst of his people. And I see in Solomon's question, will God indeed dwell on earth, that he's overcome with what I see as two complementary emotions, joy and awe. Joy and awe. He's filled with joy, as he he should be, that this nearly overwhelming experience is here, and, and he's standing at the temple. And the real glory of the temple is not that it's this magnificent Structure that Solomon has built, not that it has the cedars of Lebanon that have been brought into it or the treasures of the nations have streamed into it and there's all these precious stones and pavements of gold and all that, which is great, but the real glory of this temple is that God himself is there. God has taken up his dwelling place in Jerusalem, in the midst of the people and we read this and the the glory of the Lord fills the temple and then From verse 12 down to verse 21, there's this long section of Solomon praising and worshiping God before the people. Praising and worshiping God for his faithfulness to his people. And then we have the prayer. And then verse 54 begins another section of Solomon praising and worshiping the Lord in the midst of his people. And then at the end of that, starting in verse 62, they offer sacrifices, peace offerings to the Lord. 22,000 oxen, and 120,000 sheep. That's 142,000 animals offered to the Lord that day. And he called for a feast. Seven days, all the people of Israel feasted before the Lord. And look at verse 66. On the eighth day, he sent the people away, and they blessed the king, and they went to their homes joyful and glad of heart for all the goodness that the Lord had shown to David his servant. That was a magnificent party. A seven-day feast, and at the end of it, everyone goes to their own house with their heart still filled with joy, blessing the Lord for all of his goodness to all of his people. This is truly an, an occasion of great joy. Joy for what God has done for his people. And yet it's all, also an occasion of awe. This is an awesome occasion. And I say that knowing that the word awesome means nothing anymore. We use it for anything. We have a chocolate milkshake and we say, that was awesome. No. A milkshake can be delicious, and they are delicious, but they're not awesome. Something that's awesome, something that fills you with awe and wonder and a sense of the majesty that's around you. Solomon is rejoicing in a true sense of awe. There's a reason, I believe, that this prayer is 30 verses long, and 23 of those verses are confession of sin. Even confession of sins that have not been committed yet, they're simply asking for forgiveness that sin, for sins that are yet to come. Why? Because even though there's great joy at this, this is the kind of joy that causes you to get on your knees and worship. This is not a, a flippant joy. This is not a light and fluffy joy. This is a serious joy that's filled with awe that causes you to offer 142,000 animals to the Lord and to have your heart be filled with the goodness of God because that's what it is to be in the presence of the Lord. That's what it is to have him inhabit the the temple right there where you are and to be overcome with his presence in your midst. There's a sense of awe when you look at this. And you have to think of Solomon in, in praying this, will God really dwell on earth? Here he is. He's looking around. He's considering the history of the people of Israel. He's looking at the people of Israel, and he sees them. And He knows what a mess they are. He knows how imperfect they are. He knows that this is the people who has nearly been trying to throw off the, the shackles of this God for so long, and, and he knows the holiness of God. He says, will God really dwell in the midst of his people? this majestic God whom the heavens cannot contain? Will God really dwell on earth? And yet we know what Solomon didn't know, don't we? We know that Solomon didn't know the half of it. Standing from where we do now, thinking of the answer to that question, will God indeed dwell on the earth? We know that the answer to that question is not with his temple. This temple that he built that would last not even 500 years, and be destroyed by the Babylonians. But the answer was not that he would choose to dwell in a glory cloud in the temple, but as a baby in a manger. That God would, in fact, dwell on earth, coming as a man to walk among us, to pray for his disciples, to announce good news, the kingdom of God, and that when he would come, we would not offer sacrifices to him, He would offer a sacrifice for us. That he himself would go to the cross to be the sacrifice on behalf of the people so that we could enjoy the presence of God. He is the fulfillment not only of of the the king who is praying for his people, not only of the love and the faithfulness of God towards his people, he's the fulfillment of all these 23 verses of confession of sin that, Lord, will you hear your people? Lord, will you forgive your people when they sin? Yes. Yes, he will, because Jesus would come to walk among us. And again, the proper response from us is what? It's joy filled with awe. It's a joy, the kind of joy that causes us to get down on our knees and and to worship, to enjoy again the presence of God among us, knowing that our, our sin... Like Solomon says in verse 46, Lord, there is no one who doesn't sin against you. We're all in this. And yet, our sin is removed by Christ. Our sin is removed by Christ so that we can now be in the presence of God. See, the answer is we need a king like Solomon, but far greater than Solomon. We need Jesus, a king who prays for his people, who sacrifices for his people. And this is why I I read this text and I, I bring this to us today and I say this is not just an Old Testament passage to inform us of how things were done long ago. This is a passage meant to point our hearts towards Christ. To lead us to him in humility and in joy. To worship him. Our true king. Our king who prays for us. Our king who is the fulfillment of God's covenant with his people. Our king, who is God himself, come to dwell on earth with his people. And what did Israel do? They feasted for joy for seven days, and they left with their hearts filled with gladness for the goodness of God. In just a moment here, we're going to do the same. We're going to feast at the feast of God with hearts filled with gladness for what our king has done for us that he is God come to dwell with us, offering himself as a sacrifice that we might leave this place today with hearts filled with gladness for all the goodness of the Lord towards all his people. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you today for Christ. We thank you that, that the heavens cannot contain him, and yet he humbled himself made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore you have exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess, that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. May our knees and our tongues join the chorus today. For it's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen.